Welcome back, my loves, my bubblas. Happy New Year. I had a relaxing week. It was nice to be off for a bit, but it is great to be back with all of you. Reminder, I write and I record podcasts to share a unique and independent voice, but this project is crowdfunded. It requires the support of my readers and my listeners. So please, right now, go to leebressler.substack.com slash subscribe to sign up. 10 bucks a month, 100 bucks a year. Thank you for signing up. Uh, I'm a big Jew, so Christmas is not usually a huge production for me, but it's still nice to get in the Christmas spirit. Uh, when I was a kid, I loved the Christmas Archie comics. Those were always my favorites. I roasted a turkey for Christmas since I had promised to do that more frequently. It came out very well. Uh, I took my son to a guitar center store. He's very interested in learning to play the drums and wanted to try them out. I had never been into a guitar center. And frankly, I hope to never enter one again. The crowd there is something pretty special. I mean, the, the Venn diagram of like people who go to guitar center is a total overlap with comic book people and men who live in their mother's basements. I mean, it was just, it was bleak. The noise was overwhelming. It's a bunch of guys banging on drums and playing the guitar while wearing those, those ugly Nike Air Monarch fours. I, it's just, ugh. Um, I made lots of good coffee over the break. Uh, I'm, I'm a big coffee fan. I enjoyed the whole the ritual every morning of grinding it and making a pour over. I, I get my beans from a few different roasters, but my favorite one is Passenger Coffee in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, which I, I've i never been there, but I keep hearing that Lancaster is turning into like a major food city. So I'm curious to check it out. Uh, I brew coffee using a Kalita I have a very particular method of doing it, and um, my my most recent uh, cups were outstanding. I had some car drama over the break. Uh, there's a garage in my in my apartment building, and back in June, like what is that, six seven months ago now, they managed to wreck my car. They have one of those hydraulic lift systems where they can keep the cars on two levels, and like they put it onto the lift and then raise it up, and the the overnight attendant, he pulled my car into the bottom level of the lift back in June and he left the sunroof open. And the next morning, the day shift guy comes in and he tries to back the car out and the sunroof got caught on the lift and it, it ripped off the entire roof of the car and caved the entire thing into the vehicle. And this was, I mean, just hugely annoying and inconvenient. And it was, look, it was fine. Like I, I got a rental car and it was okay. But like, you know, the garage doesn't have normal car insurance. They have some sort of commercial insurance. So I couldn't just like call up their insurance company and file a claim with them. I had to go through my insurance company, which you never want to do. But look, they were a pleasure to work with. Uh, and, and I brought the car to a great auto body place. Uh, but then they encountered two issues. The first one was that Mazda, which is the brand of car I have, doesn't sell the entire roof as one part. So the guy there had to order 700 different parts 
700 different orders to get all of it. And then he had to, to clear everyone out of his workshop and he put the entire thing together. But because of the supply chain issues, there was one part, it's called the headliner. It's like that fabric thing that's the entire inside of the roof. And he couldn't get it. And so the guy calls me up. It's been like two months and he keeps telling me, I'm, I hope to get it next week. I hope to get it next week. Couldn't get it. Finally, after like two months, two and a half months, he calls me up and he's like, listen, you know, there's a Mazda dealership across the street and I, I shouldn't tell you this, but I, uh, they, they have one of their new cars at our shop. And so I removed the headliner from the brand new car and I put it into yours. And then when I get the one that I ordered, I'll put it into their car. And he's like, but don't, don't tell anyone. I'm like, okay, sure. Maybe, I don't know. Just as long as it's fixed. Thanks. Anyways, the car was good as new. And, uh, and I, and I love that car. It drives great. Mazda CX-5 drives really well. But then God forbid things go smooth. Things go easy. And over the break, my fucking garage did it again. Last week, I went to the garage to get the car and I opened the trunk. I loaded up with stuff and it was totally full. So I started opening the, all the doors of the car to load up like the wheel wells and load up the entire car. And I discovered that the front passenger door would not open. So I look around the car and I see that the entire front passenger side is screwed up. The garage attendant, different guy from the last time, he's standing around, he's chatting on the phone, acting like it, it, nothing's going on. And I notice all the damage and he sort of stands there playing dumb for a bit. And then after about a minute, he's like, ah, sorry, that was me. And so I, I, I mean, <laughs> fuck, man. Why don't you tell me? You saw me looking around. You saw I couldn't open the door. Why don't you mention something right away? But I guess he was trying... He was hoping that I would just not notice it, that I would take the car by myself. I'd get in the driver's side. I wouldn't notice it and then just drive away. And then when I brought it back and it wasn't working, he'd be able to go, be able to go like, oh, that wasn't me. That was, you know, must have happened to you on the street or something like that. Anyways, he, he, he was insisting that he would pay to have it repaired. But I mean, there's no way I'm, I'm taking the car to this guy's chop shop, right? Like last time I needed a rental car for two and a half months. I'm I'm not doing that and and asking the garage attendant to pay me for that. Like no way am I asking him to pay to fix my car. That's that's what the insurance is for. So I'm gonna bring the car to the repair store this week. Same place as last time. Hopefully it'll be easier. Like the car's still drivable. Last time it wasn't drivable. Hopefully they can, you know, take a look at it, figure out what they need and and fix it more easily. Uh, you know, I, I, I already started the process of filing insurance and, and hopefully this won't be a big deal for new year's day. I did what I have done almost every year for the past decade, a polar plunge in the ocean. My kids and I run into the ocean at 1 PM along with about 1500 other screaming lunatics this year. This year was pretty mild. You know, the air temperature was like 50 degrees. The water temperature was about 50 degrees. I mean, that's that's pretty easy as far as these go. In some years, the water temp is in the low 40s or high 30s and the air is in the 20s or lower. And that's brutal. That, you, like your lungs start to hurt pretty fast. But it's a fun way to start the, the new year. When my kids were younger, I would run into the ocean with one kid under each arm and I would dunk them like baptism style. 
and they were screaming and freezing. And then I would run out with them and, and then go back in so I could dunk myself. So I had to go in twice, but now they're old enough to do it on their own. And, and it's a ton of fun. Great way to start the year. Do you remember in August when President Biden decided to withdraw the American troops from Afghanistan and the media and the military establishment went ballistic. Both sides of the aisle, left wing, right wing, everybody went ballistic that it was the wrong decision and he was doing it the wrong way and he's so incompetent. You remember all those headlines? And I would argue, I would argue that this was the very best decision that he has made as president. I mean, the press was in a tizzy about it. It dominated the headlines for two weeks. It's incredible how quickly they forgot. The whole thing was like memory hold. I have not heard someone mention Afghanistan since August. We were there at war for 20 fucking years. And for almost that entire time, it was barely discussed. No one cared. It was on the other side of the earth in this shitty, poor country and just nobody cared. And then suddenly we exit, we end the war and everyone cares for a moment. Like the whole thing just didn't smell right. But then as soon as the headlines moved on, nobody cared anymore. It was clear to me what was going on. And I wrote about it at the time. This war in Afghanistan was a debacle. For 20 years, we had this U.S. You know, human intelligence. I say that in quotes. It was mostly provided by the CIA. And it completely failed to report back to Washington that the Afghan army was a complete fraud. America funded this and all it accomplished was a waste of $2 trillion, mostly to line the pockets of the Afghan political class and the military contractors who provided all the equipment that was used in the war. And the incentive for the military industry to, to see us at war, that's clear, right? The longer we fight, the more we buy Humvees and AMRAPs and drones and bombs. Like, I don't blame Lockheed Martin and Raytheon for wanting to see us at war. Of course, they're going to talk their book. I fault the politicians for being so susceptible to their lobbying that they made bad decisions just to appease this industry. But I think it's also important to explore the incentive of the military leaders, because I think that's a lot less clear to people. If you're a general in the army, in the Marines, if you're an admiral in the Navy, you have a lot more clout and budget and power if we are actively at war. Because when we are actively at war, the military will have more troops, more equipment, more relevance. It makes sense that these leaders would want to see us in a war posture. And this war in Afghanistan, I mean, after 9-11, the Bush administration felt this need to do something. It was very clear that they felt that. And they knew that they would look weak if they didn't retaliate in some way. It was a little strange to invade Afghanistan, like bin Laden and all the known perpetrators of 9-11 were Saudi. I mean, we had some indication that bin Laden was hiding in Afghanistan. And so like war it was. But our entire military was built to fight state actors. 
we were set up to fight a battle against an equally matched adversary, fighting with troops and fighter planes and tanks. And all of that was useless in Afghanistan. You know, I remember in high school learning about the Revolutionary War. And part of the reason we were able to defeat the British is because they insisted on doing things in this very formal way. They would wear these uniforms and march and, and, and then the Americans were like gorillas and they defeated the, the British. And, but, but that's us now. We're trying to do things in this very like formal way to fight a state actor. It's not relevant anymore. And it was useless in Afghanistan. And on top of that, the entire premise of the war was never clear. Like, were we there to find bin Laden? Were we there to protect women's rights? Was it to create a democracy and build a nation state? Were we there to destroy the opium or for the lithium ion? I mean, just having this nebulous mission worked in the best interests of those who wanted us at war because they could always say that we had not yet achieved our goal. And with this vague mission, still Bush accomplished nothing. Bin Laden managed to escape to Pakistan in December 2001. In 2002, Hamid Karzai took charge of the Afghan government, such as it was, and the, the U.S. mission somehow shifted to nation building. But why? Why was that our job? Why was that our responsibility? And that went on for years. When Obama took over in 2009 and the generals told him, they, 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 they sat him down. You can just, you can see the entire thing. You can imagine it. They sit him down and they're like, listen, Bush was an idiot. We all know Bush was an idiot, but you have the chance to win this war. All we need was a, 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 a surge and we would be able to win. And so throughout 2009, Obama sent nearly 50,000 additional troops to Afghanistan, but it was useless. It didn't win us anything meaningful. It didn't create an Afghan army with any strength. It didn't help us to find bin Laden. If you believe the prevailing narrative, bin Laden was found with intelligence that was acquired long before Obama took over, long before that surge. And he was killed in Pakistan, not in Afghanistan, in 2011. At the time of the surge, though, Joe Biden was vice president, and he was the only one who vocally protested against the war. But he was overruled by Obama and by the generals. Obama knew that keeping these generals happy would help him to win re-election. He didn't, he didn't want them against him. But once, once bin Laden was killed, the, the hazy sort of reasoning for the war just continued to evolve. At, at, by the time bin Laden was killed, America had endured about 1,800 troop casualties. We'd spent about $450 billion fighting the war at that point, which by the way, it's kind of incredible to think we spent $450 billion in the first 10 years and another $1.5 trillion in the next 10 years. That's crazy to me. By 2013, supposedly the Afghan army had taken over security in the country. But this army was just, it was a nothing. It was a racket created by Hamid Karzai. And it was sold to, to, to Petraeus and, and Mattis, these naive generals. And when Trump took over in 2017, the generals used the same playbook on him. They sat him down and they're like, listen, Bush was an idiot. We all know Bush was an idiot. And Obama was an idiot. 
but you can be the one to win this war. And it was clear that Trump was skeptical, but he continued to prosecute this imprecise mission for another four years. Now, he drew down the troop levels, but he continued to keep us at war. And when Biden took over in 2021, they tried the same shit with him. But he was hip to their scam. He had seen them pull this with Obama, and he was not buying it. Now, there is no perfect way to end a war. Withdrawing this number of troops, it's always going to be messy. But Biden did it about as well as possible. He withdrew our troops quickly, decisively, and he did it despite being absolutely blasted in the mainstream press. If anything, the the most interesting thing here was that the response from the media showed just how much the media was beholden to the the generals, to the to the military industry who fed them this storyline that the withdrawal was going poorly. But of course, despite having spent, I don't know, 15 years building up this Afghan army and, and believing that they were in control, within days of the withdrawal, Afghanistan was in control of the Taliban. And this really exposed the fraud of the entire thing more than, more than anything else. I mean, the Afghan army surrendered to these poorly equipped, poorly trained Taliban without firing a shot. And this made clear that the entire conflict was just a, a charade to transfer money from U.S. Tra- taxpayers to, to the military complex that kept us at war. And Petraeus and his counterinsurgency handbook were shown to be useless. And just as quickly as the press painted Biden as incompetent, the entire thing was forgotten because once the troops were gone, once it was clear that the generals couldn't pressure us to stay for another few years for no reason, there was no point anymore. We were gone. We weren't going to go back. And the entire thing was memory hold. It just wasn't interesting anymore. But they're determined to see us at war again. And so the, they, they've now turned their attention to Iran. There was a very long article in the New Yorker this week about Iran. It's one of the weirder articles I've read in a while. The the entire thing, and I'm linking to it in the Substack, the entire thing reads like an advertorial for going to war. The author of the piece spent a, a lot of time embedded with a General Frank McKenzie, who's the Marine general who leads the U.S. military operations across the Middle East and South Asia. And the article implies that Iran is on the cusp of developing nuclear weapons and of just obliterating the entire region. And this article is, it's part of a theme over the past 25 plus years where the press has reported every few years, it's, it's like a bot does it almost. The press reports that Iran is on the cusp of blowing up the world of acquiring nuclear weapons and blowing up the world. Now, don't get me wrong. Iran is a dangerous country. It is run by religious zealots. They are determined to wipe Israel off the map. As a proud Zionist, I do not want that to happen. But I also believe that the threat posed by Iran has been consistently overstated for decades. Iran is a very poor country on another continent surrounded by far wealthier and more technologically advanced adversaries. It does not pose any threat to the U.S. at all. 
But our military industry is trying to put the screws to Biden and set the stage for more war, more fighting and more fear. And, and you know, they tried it over the last few months. There were some articles about China developing these supposed hypersonic weapons. It's the same shit. It's, it's, it's scare tactics to try to get us to go to war because they can't just keep pumping Afghanistan full of all of this equipment. You know, one theme that I want to focus on here on the show in 2022 is understanding the motivations of those who make certain arguments. I want us, all of us, to build a skepticism, to take things like this with a grain of salt. Because if you didn't, if you didn't have that critical reasoning and that skepticism, you would read this article and you'd go, oh my God, this is really bad. We got to go to war right away. But if you just pause and reflect on it for a minute, you'd realize that it's hysterical writing written by people who are incentivized to see us at war. You know, the Latin phrase is, is qui bono, and it means who benefits. In this case, of course, the Marine general is going to advocate for war. He wants more budget. He wants power, and he wants to manage a larger organization. That makes him indispensable. We discussed last year the way that the teachers' unions have advocated for school closures, not to protect children, but to make sure that their members had to work less. It's the same way that the prison guard unions are the strongest advocates for the criminalization of drugs. Why? Because the more people who are arrested, the more prison guards need to be hired. So this year, our theme is going to be understanding these motivations, because that's how we are going to assess the credibility of these policies and help us figure out what is the most sensible way to do things. So as I predicted last month, everyone is getting the Omicron. Uh, but also as I predicted, it's proving to be irrelevant from a public health perspective. People aren't dying from this, not, not in like a meaningful numbers. They're not getting very sick. I had it. It was a, it was a nothing. Remember that the common cold is a coronavirus. For a long time, we didn't worry about the common cold. We didn't worry about coronaviruses. And Omicron is that. It's like a common cold. It's not killing people. It's not hospitalizing people. I wrote last month that the original COVID strain was terrible. It was really, it was awful. It killed all these elderly people. Now, some of that was maybe policy mistakes and and putting people in the nursing homes and shit. But it's it's bad. It's lethal shit. If you're 80 and you get this, you, you're going to die. You're on your way out. And that was even as it posed minimal risk to young people, to children. It was really nifty that we made vaccines against this virus and rolled them out in the span of like a year. Arguably, they could have been rolled out even faster, but the whole public health bureaucracy delayed approving them so that they wouldn't benefit Trump. But Biden took office. He promised to eliminate COVID and then maintained the exact same policy that Trump had. These vaccines, they were effective at preventing severe harm from that original strain of COVID. And maybe they wear off. Maybe, I don't know, you need a booster or something. But, but they do the most important thing. They stop you from dying. 
I get it. They were oversold. They were totally oversold by incompetent bureaucrats, but they do a good job of the thing they're supposed to do. We saw it over time. The likelihood of dying from COVID was far lower amongst vaccinated people than among the unvaccinated people. But these vaccines also seem to be irrelevant against the Omicron. They don't stop you from catching it. But that's fine. It's, this Omicron doesn't seem to carry any significant health risks, so it doesn't seem to matter. If anything, one could argue that if this, if the Omicron provides you with some sort of inoculation against the other strands of COVID, then it's almost like a vaccine that you catch. That's one way of thinking about it. But the real devastation seems to be caused by stupidity. It's it's the economic devastation. It in a time with major worker shortages, people are being forced to stay home for days just because they were in a room with someone with the Omicron. I mean, just what? For the past two years, anyone, anyone who protested against any of these policies against the vaccine mandates, you were, you were painted as a fringe lunatic and an anti-vaxxer and a conspiracy theorist, and you were banned from social media Despite the fact that time and again, that, that prevailing narrative was proving, proven wrong, but you were constantly portrayed as a lunatic if you did any of this. But this mainstream media narrative was completely insane. And, and that fringe concern about being forced to vaccinate and boost with ever more shots was shown to be a pretty reasonable concern. And I wrote that the narrative on Omicron would shift quickly and pervasively. And I think that's happening as we speak, because suddenly the media is telling us case numbers don't matter anymore. Why are they saying that? Because all the vaccinated people that they said have to get vaccinated, they all have it anyways. And record numbers of people testing positive for, for a sore throat, that's not a crisis. People who are in the hospital because they get in a car wreck and then they test positive, that's not a crisis. The hysteria that surrounds this, forcing people to miss work because of a, a, a positive test, this obsession with the testing, that's a fucking crisis. And I'm not saying all this to, to go like, look at me, I was right. I'm not trying to toot my own horn, but I'm trying to, to point out that this notion of zero COVID, of stamping down this virus was always an illusion, but it raises an interesting contrast with China which has pursued that strategy. China has largely closed its borders for the past two years. International tourism has declined dramatically. And as the rest of the world has grappled with the right policy to minimize the harm caused by COVID, China has taken a different approach. They have tried to block it out entirely. Now, I'm not talking about how it originated. That's a, a topic for another day. I'm talking about what they've done since then. And every positive case was met with incredibly stringent restrictions. The most recent example is in the city of Xi'an, which is a huge city. It's like 13 million people. Think about that, 13 million people. New York City is 8 million people. So you're talking about more than one and a half New York cities. And that's not even the biggest city in China. And there's an outbreak I use that word loosely, 800 cases that has led to a complete lockdown of the entire city. 
Now, of course, this, this is made a lot more difficult because China only allows its citizens to get the Chinese homemade vaccines. And China has tried to build its influence around the world by exporting these vaccines. The problem is that the vaccines are doo-doo. Like, they might as well be giving you saline. They're only slightly better than useless. About half the doses of COVID vaccines that have been given around the world are these Chinese ones. Side note, I think the U.S. missed a major opportunity to show its benevolence and its power by exporting its far superior vaccines. Anyway, Xi'an has locked everyone inside while they disinfect the entire city. They are spraying it down with chemicals. Like there's pictures of people in hazmat suits just spraying down the entire city. And logic, logic would tell me that this disinfection process is theater. It is not something useful. It's part of the, the anti-COVID theater that has been adopted by the dumbest people. And that is totally irrelevant in fighting an airborne virus, right? It, what do you, what should you be doing? You, like leave the windows open. And I mean, there's some like pretty obvious things, but spraying down the city is up there with all the rest of those measures that serve no epidemiological purpose, but they allow the officials to appear to be doing something and to make the, the extra cautious individuals feel safe. But let's talk about this policy in China of zero COVID. I think China has pursued this policy not only because it wants to prevent people from getting COVID, but also because it sees this as a means for pursuing a policy that China calls dual circulation. At its basic level, the term refers to keeping China open to the world, which it refers to as the great international circulation, while strengthening its domestic market. That's the great domestic circulation. The strategy is vague, but it is at the heart of the five-year plan for 2021 through 2025, which is the document that guides China's policy goals. And the term international circulation was coined in 1988 by a government researcher named Wang Jian. He argued that China should pursue a strategy of export-led growth, that China should insert its giant pool of cheap labor into global production networks. And they have, right? Think about all the factories that moved to China to take advantage of cheap labor. That's been the guiding principle for China's economic planners for more than 30 years. But circumstances have changed and exports have shrunk as a share of China's GDP. Exports were 36% of GDP in 2006 and now only about 18% of GDP. And the government has vowed to make consumption within China a bigger engine of growth. So they have turned to the domestic circulation. Now, Xi Jinping, China's leader, has described the, the creation of a fully domestic supply chain as a matter of national security. Because the more self-sufficient China becomes, the less it is susceptible to sanctions, the more it can cause trouble abroad for Hong Kong or Taiwan or further afield. Xi Jinping recognizes that there is a strategic purpose to opening China's domestic market to foreign firms, right? If you want to sell your stuff here, 
If you want access to our huge market and make profits from selling stuff to Chinese citizens, you better transfer a lot of IP to us. And at the same time, we're going to try to build our own totally separate supply chains so that we're not dependent on imports from anywhere else and we're not dependent on any other country. It's pretty smart. Absolutely, it's very smart. And so now they're pursuing this economic self-reliance. And China recognizes that it is dependent on foreign suppliers. They need to develop critical technologies at home. So they're pulling out all the stops. They're providing loan support and tax breaks to encourage the semiconductor industry and the software firms. China currently produces about 30% of the computer chips that it consumes. It wants to reach 70% self-sufficiency in the next three years. That's a huge jump. Uh, I don't know if that's feasible, but that's a huge jump. China is dependent on imported energy. So they're trying to build out this massive solar and wind power industry because you don't need to import that. And then you won't need to import oil. They're trying to reduce their dependence on other countries. Contrast, by the way, with the way Germany has just increased its dependence on foreign energy and turned off its nuclear plants, which was incredibly stupid. But I think that China has pursued the zero COVID model, not just to prevent people from getting COVID, but to, to encourage the economic state of autarky. I think China is trying to disentangle itself from the rest of the world and reduce their dependence. And they see zero COVID as a shortcut to doing it. And if anything, it's sort of a, a show of confidence by President Xi that he can start to cut China off in that way. Now look, China is a dangerous copycat of the United States. For the past 20 plus years, China has imported American technology and IP and made deals with American firms. You can make money here, but you have to give us all of your IP. And then they built a copy of all the American products and the companies, Google and Baidu, Twitter and Weibo, Uber and Didi, and, and Expedia and C-Trip, or Amazon and Alibaba. I mean, the list goes on. China has supported these companies. And, and it's interesting the way they've done it. They've created this sort of mandatory demand from the government-led enterprises, the state-owned enterprises. There was a, a great interview that Dan Wang did with Ben Thompson in September. And, and Dan said, I'm going to read a quote from him. In my view, the fundamental problem with Chinese industrial policy has been that this has mostly been a government-led affair in which the government counts on mostly government ministries as well as state-owned enterprises to be the buyers of obviously inferior Chinese technologies and then hopes that the procurement process drives improvements. Sometimes this works. This worked in the case of solar panels, where you have basically provinces the size of EU countries competing amongst themselves to be buyers, and that pulled forward a lot of technology progress. But as I said, this was a failure in semiconductors. It's very interesting, right, that, that China is trying to support these companies with all the demand from the state-owned enterprises. Sometimes it works. Sometimes it does not. But I really can't think of a single meaningful innovation that China has created 
over that period. China has been a copycat. It has copied its way into economic development, often at the expense of the American people. In everything from business to basic sciences, I mean, witness the, the, the Thousand Talents program in which China provided a huge amount of illicit funding to American scientists in exchange for access to their research. And a lot of these scientists lied about their funding, including Charles Lieber, who was, I think, the head of the chemistry department at Harvard, and he was found guilty a couple of weeks ago of hiding his ties and his funding from China. Before we close, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave you with a, a conversation between Brett Hall and Naval Ravikant from the beginning of Infinity Podcast. I think it makes a really good point. Brett says, China keeps graduating more Bachelor of Science and Bachelor of Engineers than anywhere else in the world. China's universities are pumping out more science graduates than us, but they're not pumping out more innovators. It's not like the students that are coming out of those universities in China with their science degrees are going off and doing innovative stuff. It's quite the opposite because they've been trained in a particular way. They're being trained to memorize the textbook, respond to the exam. They can't think outside of the box. They've been trained that this is what's true. This is the unquestioned correct way of thinking about science. And that might be good for being able to imitate as we see, but it's not going to be the thing that enables you to push forward the frontier in technology, let alone in fundamental physics or anywhere else. I don't care what the statistics are on how many science graduates they've got. That makes no difference. Give me 10 innovative, creative, young physics graduates, over 50,000 physics graduates who are all able to pass the exam with 100% efficiency any day. And then Naval said in response, so one Einstein is worth the legion of drones with PhDs in physics. It doesn't matter. Creativity goes zero to one and no amount of throwing bodies at the problem will get you there. That's just the nature of mimetic evolution. It's just the nature of creativity. It's a really interesting point. If you're not taught to think critically and creatively, you're not going to be able to innovate. And China isn't innovating. China is a dangerous adversary. It represents much more of a threat to America than any other country in the world. China has gotten rich at our expense, and it is time for us to adopt a more muscular posture towards protecting our intellectual property. And this isn't to say we should go to war, but we need a lot more long-term thinking rather than just the, the short-term selling out that many American corporations have done. Thank you for joining me today. Remember that I write and I record my podcast to share a point of view that you will not find elsewhere in the media, but I depend on your support to do it. So please leebrestler.substack.com slash subscribe, sign up. If you enjoyed this, share it with your friends, with your colleagues. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram, and I'll be back with more soon.